Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and see if we can learn a little bit more about their background. Joining us today is Dr. Ishamina Altira Gardner, who is a lecturer in the Language Center at the University of Brunei Dar es Salaam. Very nice to make your acquaintance. Hi, thank you for having me. The paper that we're going to be speaking about was a chapter from the Handbook of Asian Englishes called The Features of Asian Englishes, Phonology, which you published last year with Dr. David Deterding. Yes, that's correct. And at the very beginning of the paper, the very first line in the introduction, you talk about the conceptualizing of world Englishes using Katru's three circles. This is something that's come up on the podcast in different interviews before, but if someone was coming to this field for the first time, uh, what do most people not know about world Englishes? So when presenting your work, how do you explain your rationale, your interest to other language researchers? It would be very helpful to just very briefly introduce um, world Englishes and um, many people will think about the three circles. So it is um, one of the most influential models. In fact, there are um, a few others as well. Catru's three circle model is um, very helpful in um, looking at uh, a con conceptualizing the spread of English, despite the many criticisms that it is outdated. Uh, however, it is still very helpful so when we talk about the three circles model, this comes from 1985 and uh, Dr. Braj Katru, who talked about conceptualizing English as being in three concentric circles. So the inner circle would be the traditionally thought of as L1 users of English, US, yeah. UK, Australia. Um, the outer circle would then be the former colonies of these places. So we're thinking about India and the Philippines, places like that. And then the expanding circle is everybody else. So every other place where English is used. Are there any other things that you think you met, you mentioned that sometimes people might criticize the three circles model to be kind of outdated. Is there anything else that you think people who are new to the field should know about world Englishes before we get into the details of the paper? So uh, world Englishes um, looks at the emergence of new varieties of English. So it identifies different localized and indigenized varieties of English around the world, mostly um, in the outer circle, because um, as you have mentioned earlier in your brief definition, the outer circle represent countries that have a colonial past. So because of language contact, throughout the years, there is the um, emergence of um, new types of Englishes being spoken, localized and indigenous varieties. So uh, it is actually very interesting uh, to describe them in terms of their distinctive features. So you have all these different English varieties used around the world. Also, uh, what I would like to point out is that when we talk about world Englishes, um, it also seems to, uh, pe people also seem to talk about it alongside ELF, uh, English as a lingua franca. Mm. 
And despite having similarities, there are also differences. And I think, I think it would be, um, it, it is important to know what the differences are. So um, World Englishes look, looks at the different varieties of Englishes. So it, it identifies different varieties of Englishes, usually um, based on geography and location, based mm. on region. Yes, yeah, so you have, for example, Indian English, um, Hong Kong English, Nigerian English, and so on. Whereas ELF, English as a lingua franca, well, there is no single stable variety of English. So um, it focuses on communication between, uh, between and among people from different language backgrounds. So essentially um, international communication without focusing on a single variety of English used. We have spoken about uh, English as a lingua franca with uh, Dr. Jennifer Jenkins. Yes, and we also, yes. We also picked up on world Englishes and English as an international language with Dr. Aya Matsuda and yeah. um, with Dr. Nobuyuki Hino. So uh, these are, these are, this is an interesting way to think about world Englishes because we haven't really looked at world English varieties beyond uh, the Japanese variety that we spoke about with Dr. Hino. And okay. in your paper, you looked at five outer circle countries. So Singapore, Brunei, Hong Kong, India, uh, the Philippines and three expanding circle countries, China, Japan, and Vietnam. And you're right to note that world Englishers tends to look at places in terms of the geography, the region, the places where they are, whereas yeah. ELF is a little bit more about the function of the language, not so much the form. Do you think that categorizing and looking at the elements or the phonological elements of English varieties. Do you think it helps to establish greater legitimacy for non-L1 varieties of English in the outer circle? Yes, I think so. Um, in this way, it helps to establish the different varieties of English used in these different parts of the world and how these distinct varieties actually exist. Um, and particularly how uh, um, distinguishable they are from inner circle Englishes and also other varieties of Englishes. Um, so uh, categorizing the varieties of, of, of um, English under this world, English, world Englishes paradigm is mostly based on geography and region. Okay, so again, as, as um, just repeating what you've said, based on countries, so they are named accordingly. Um, so we have Caribbean Englishes, Asian Englishes, Indian Englishes, and so on. So they are, um, of course, distinct in terms of pronunciation, grammar, and lexis, mostly influenced by their respective um, local languages. So it is very interesting to look at these, um, these differences in these distinctive features. And you do note in the paper that although Hong Kong is a part of China and it's not an independent country because of its long colonial history and the fact that it is um, less connected to Mandarin Chinese than it is to Cantonese, then there's going to be different features that you can see in the difference between, say, Hong Kong and Chinese English. 
Yes, so herein lies the problem. <laughs> Despite um, describing all these different varieties of, of English, um, we also actually questioned where, um, uh, whether we should in fact categorize um, varieties of English based on region. Mm. Um, of course, um, give, uh, giving that example, um, Hong Kong English, well, okay, it is very distinct, not very distinct, but it is quite distinct from Chinese English. And um, in, in our paper on the phonology of Asian Englishes, we have pointed this out and we describe them separately. Hmm. So um, in Hong Kong, I mean, I mean, Chinese English as well, what, what is a Chinese language, right? Hmm. There, it is just an umbrella term for all these different, um, all many different languages spoken um, in in the in the region, hmm. and of course um, in Hong Kong, um, the the local language the the local language spoken is um, mostly Cantonese. Um, so it is mostly based on um, Cantonese as um, L1 speakers of Cantonese. Mm. Whereas in China, it's mostly based on Mandarin and many other um, different varieties of, of Chinese languages. So it is quite distinct. And um, the other thing is as well, um, it's very difficult to describe a variety of English based on a nation. So, for example, if you look at Indian English, okay, mm. uh, it, it, now Indian English again is, is, is an umbrella term. Mm. In India itself, there are so many um, languages spoken in the country, um, many uh, regional languages, and so on. And within this variety of English, there are sub varieties. So um, it has even been, um, uh, these varieties have even been named and termed as, for example, Hindustani English, Kamada English, Bengali English, you know, because um, they're quite um, distinct. Although there are some aerial features that um, we can describe. So at the end of the, uh, both sections. So at the end of the section on outer circle English, you note the shared features of outer circle English. And then at the end of the section on expanding circle English, you note perhaps some of the, the comparisons that you can make with the shared features of outer circle English as well. And it, it got me thinking about a paper that was written sorry, a book that was written back in 2010 by one of the editors of the Handbook of Asian English where this paper is published. So uh, Dr. Andy Kirkpatrick looking at Asian English. But that was 10 years ago and certainly 10 years before this uh, analysis was published. Has there been any uh, change uh, in the field? How, how has that model changed? Okay, uh, so I would just like to briefly um, introduce this um, multilingual model of as an English, um, as he uh, discussed in his book. To those who um, are not familiar with ASEAN, um, ASEAN, A-S-E-A-N, Association of Southeast Asian Nations, 
um, is a regional union comprising of uh, 10 Southeast Asian countries. What is quite remarkable here is that the working or the, the sole working language of ASEAN is English. It is the second language of education in a majority of ASEAN countries. This highlights the um, importance of English. So it is it has a very um, privileged position in many countries, despite if we look at Catrice three circles again, within within ASEAN, there are only four countries um, that can be classified in the outer circle that has that have a colonial link um, with English speaking um, imperial powers. So Singapore, Malaysia and Brunei were colonized by Britain. The Philippines were colonized that was colonized by um, America. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, Myanmar is a completely different story. It was colonized by Britain as well, but because of its um, decades of military rule, um, English doesn't have a, a, an important position. So it is usually classified um, in the expanding circle. So then you have the rest of um, the countries in, in, in ASEAN who, uh, under this uh, three-circle model, belong in the expanding circle. It, the, the position of English in these countries are, of course, increasing. What Professor Andy Kirkpatrick pointed out was um, this, with the widespread adoption of English, so what about the position of the local languages? Mm -hmm. um, so he questioned whether English can be introduced and taught in a way that complements local languages rather than replace them. So it was how this multilingual model uh, came about. Now, English is also um, used as a lingua franca by multilinguals in ASEAN, especially in informal settings mm -hmm. and uh, also in international and regional communication in the region. Under this multilingual model, uh, Professor Kirkpatrick suggests that multilinguals should be at the center of this, of this model. Mm -hmm. So we should have multilinguals as language teachers, as role models, rather than, um, I don't want to call them native speakers, uh, but rather than inner circle speakers. Right, right. Right. How can we establish balance between lo um, local languages and English? So he also proposed introducing English at a later time in the school curriculum mm -hmm. and retain the use of local languages in the early years of education. The, the, the situation in Brunei is quite uh, different from other countries in ASEAN. For example, we have uh, the bilingual education system here, which has been in place since 1985 right after gaining independence from Britain. Mm -hmm. Under this bilingual education system, the first three years of early education, of pr primary education, in, in, in the first three years, the medium of instruction was in Malay. Mm -hmm. And from the fourth year of 
primary school onwards up to secondary level and tertiary level, the medium of instruction is English. Mm -hmm. So um, ma major subjects are taught in Malay from year one up to year three, and then from year four onwards, these core subjects are taught in English. So that, uh, that shapes the bilingual um, education system in Brunei. One, I think one of the motivations for this was to produce um, effective bilinguals, people who can be proficient in both English and Malay, and to provide uh, equal opportunities for all um, school children. And it was only, not, it's not even recent anymore, it was uh, maybe more, more than 10 years ago, a new system of education was implemented um, in which um, it is not really bilingual anymore because in from the first year of primary school onwards, uh, the medium of instruction for important subjects like science and mathematics are now being taught in English. Mm -hmm. And one of the, I think what, one of the um, concerns was that um, children, school children were confused. Now, um, I am a product of the bilingual education system. And I, I can clearly remember being really confused that there's this sudden switch from year three to year four. Mm. Um, in using English all of a sudden in, in the school subjects. So we had to learn new terms and concepts um, in, in English. Um, so there seems to be a, a shift in um, using um, more English in the education system from an early age. Now, I think this was one of the concerns um, about uh, the position of local or national language versus English. In terms of um, producing individuals who are highly proficient in English, I think even uh, Professor Andy Kirkpatrick um, suggested that the bilingual education system in Brunei is probably the most successful in ASEAN. There is high proficiency in English but uh, many people are still able to retain their Bruneian identity. And actually Brunei Malay, which is a variety of Malay spoken here in, in Brunei, is the lingua franca of the country. If we look at the Philippines, we, could, we can compare this to the Philippines where um, 19 languages are being used as the languages of instruction in the first three years of primary school, which is quite similar to the bilingual education system we had here. There are also some concerns about not introducing English at an earlier age, linked to um, difficulty in uh, being proficient in the language or learning the language later on. Brunei is a good example of how successful the introduction of English is uh, in the education system from, from an early from, from an earlier level of education. How, how common is English use outside of academic settings in Brunei? Very common. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, essentially, the educate the bilingual education system in Brunei 
did produce um, an effective bilingual population. But the national language in the country, the official language is Malay, mm -hmm. and English is the second language. It, it is used in um, many domains, uh, especially in education. But um, many people can speak English and Malay quite fluently as well. Because it's, one of the, it's one of the concerns, I think it's kind of one of the concerns that comes up when we look at EMI, um, yes. when that's implemented, but there isn't a lot of passive contact with the language outside the classroom, they tend not to be effective. But if it is used commonly in the media, in conversation, in everyday interactions with, with strangers, then it, it does provide that passive reinforcement of, well, first of all, the chance to practice it and also of its importance in daily life. Yes, it has actually permeated daily life in Brunei, so everybody speaks it. But uh, that being said, um, there is a lot of code mixing, <laughs> right. uh, mixing English and Malay, even sometimes a Chinese language. So, um, of course, you know, this is a consequence of um, bilingualism, multilingualism. Um, but there are quite there, there are quite a lot of highly proficient um, English speakers in Brunei, mostly among the, the well-educated population. Well, I did notice, um, because this isn't a paper that looks into perhaps features of code mixing and vocabulary and grammar, it's on phonology. Yes. And I did notice that Brunei had the fewest number of features listed for discussion. So after each of the countries, they uh, the paper goes through very, very well. It's a, it's a really interesting meta-analysis of the, of the phonology of these eight countries. But after the introduction and a history of how it's been investigated, there are then certain features that are noticeable in this in the phonology of the uh, of the language, but you don't really go into the code mixing and, and local Lexus and things like that. Would you say that the education system has left Brunei English with fewer features to comment on when producing a paper like this? In the last decade, there have been more um, more studies written about Brunei English or trying to describe Brunei English. But it's, it's very difficult. I mean, um, there's still, there, there is so much variation in the type of English spoken here, uh, in contrast to, for example, Singapore English, where some features are very distinctive. For example, um, if, if we take one aspect of pronunciation uh, in Brunei, let's look at roticity. Mm -hmm. Okay, so roticity is um, a pronunciation of the r sound, post-vocalic r. It's still variable, so it's very difficult to, to say whether Brunei English is rhotic or not. Although recent studies um, show that younger people are becoming more rhotic. Because, especially because of um, influence, the influence from um, American English. Right. There has even been a discussion about whether Brunei English can be called Brunei English at all, whether th this variety, whether we can even term the type of English spoken in Brunei as Brunei English, because there's just too much variation. Is it due to the connection between the person's L1 or 
the person's community, the person's education background? Uh, are these the variables? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, the, there's so there there is there are a lot of variables involved. So the, the majority of uh, the population in Brunei are Malay. Mm -hmm. So um, many people speak Brunei Malay, but then there are also other languages. Um, there are some Chinese languages spoken. There are some other indigenous languages, um, such as Dusu, Tutong. And um, of course, uh, different people identify their local languages as their L1. Yes, there is influence from their L1. But the other thing is, is educational background. One of the things um, brought about by this um, bilingual education system, um, okay, one of the motivations behind it was to provide equal opportunity to all school mm. children. So everybody can have access to in, uh, education in English, being taught in the English language because of the different socioeconomic background of, um, of pupils. And of course, there are different types of schools. Students who go to international schools um, and they go to better schools come from um, a good socioeconomic background. And then you have the rest of the majority that go to rural schools and have lower come from lower socioeconomic families, and they don't have the same uh, privilege or the same access to English, for example, as um, the other children. So this is what we call the educational divide. Yes, this was one of the features that came up in my conversation with Dr. Elizabeth Erling where she was talking about people who were recent immigrants to the country. And so we're still talking about people who are from Brunei, but the, the less understanding you have of the language of instruction, the more difficult it is for you to pick up whatever subject, be it a language or another, another academic subject, it's always gonna be very difficult if you don't understand what the teacher is saying. This then over time, with, as you say, less access or socioeconomic difficulties just creates this gap. And it's certainly something that has come up again in other interviews, several interviews, where we don't want English to become the agent of making this gap wider. We don't want to make it more difficult for people to get a good education. And this kind of ties into discussions that we've had on the topic of uh, EMI. And I notice on your web page, the university web page, that you have an interest in English as a medium of instruction. So, uh, and also ELF. So my next question is, where would you like to take this research from here? I mean, uh, the work that went into this paper, like I said, it's a, it's a very, very thorough meta-analysis of, of studies going back uh, into, the, into the 90s and into the 80s as well. So must have taken a great deal of your time while doing this. Did you get any inspiration for where you'd like to go next with your work? Well, yes, of course. Uh, I, I am particularly interested now in Asian Englishes, particularly looking at the aspect of pronunciation. And I would love to be able to do more research on different varieties and some varieties of, of um, Asian Englishes. Much has already been written about Singapore English, Chinese English, Hong Kong English, Indian English, Philippine English, and even Brunei English although there is still more to explore, but lesser attention has been paid to um, other varieties that are 
classified under the expanding circle in Southeast Asia, such as India, uh, Indonesia, Thai, Thailand, Cambodia, and so on. And I would love to do more research into this and to be able to describe all these distinctive um, features in these different varieties of English. Describing different varieties of English, so this is, this is again comes under the, the world English's paradigm mm. um, and their distinctive features, can be helpful and actually it can have implications for language teaching on several levels. So, um, for example, if we look at the aspect of pronunciation teaching, we look at the salient features described for the different varieties of English, mm. it can help inform pronunciation instruction in English language teaching in these different regions. So, for example, it can inform teachers about which features of pronunciation learners have particular difficulty with, Mm -hmm. the different types of learners with, um, with different L1s, for example. And they can focus on this. If, and um, for, for two years, I have taught English pronunciation to um, learners from Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, Indonesia, and Myanmar, and also China. They're, they're not part of Southeast Asia, but um, they're part of Asia, nonetheless. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting. One of the first things I, want, I, I asked them was, why do you want to learn English? And um, what do you think about your own pronunciation of English? So most of them are not confident with their pronunciation of English. And most of them say they want to improve the English pronunciation mm. and that they, they strive to at least sound like in a circle speakers of English. Of course, you know, that this, this mindset again is not mm. unique. It's quite universal with um, learners of, of, a, of a language or, or, or of a foreign language. So it was actually quite difficult because, um, well, my lessons are based on um, British English, although I don't, I don't have a British accent because I'm not, I'm not British. I teach them phonetics and phonology, looking at um, uh, all these different speech sounds, uh, articulation as well. And I've, I have noticed that, you know, coming from different countries and having different L1s, they're actually, the, 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 the pronunciation features are quite different. They each have um, different, they have difficulty in, in pronouncing different sounds, different um, phonemes, sorry, different phonemes. Yeah, I'm sorry. So uh, we try to work on articulation. So for example, how to pronounce dental fricatives and all, all these mm. things. But I have always been so mindful about um, reminding them that you don't have to always sound like a, an inner circle speaker mm. you can because that their main goal anyway to learn english is to be able to communicate effectively in international communication right so yeah so again bringing this you know this, this stand under the standpoint of elf you know the goal should be to be uh, to be able to communicate effectively to achieve mutual intelligibility rather than to um sound like an inner circle 
speaker. So I always try to remind them that as long as you can speak clearly, as long as you can be understood, then it should be fine. And um, I also like to expose them to um, different accents of, of English. So not just looking at the speech of British English or American English, but listening to different accents of English, such as um, Indian English and Chinese English and so on. Well, I always equate it to, when trying to explain it, I don't always use English. I will say, well, let's say you're me who has um, you know, lived in England for 20 years, now in Japan for 20 years. My Japanese pronunciation is not great, but it's certainly much, much better than it was. And there are certain sounds that you can't pronounce if you only have ever used British English. You, you literally don't have the muscles for it and in your mouth. And I always equate it to something like, well, if you're a javelin thrower, then you've never really learned how to do the high jump. It's different muscles that you need to work out. So if you're a decathlete and you can participate in all these different sports. It's like someone who has a very large phonological range and who can participate in lots of different languages. So teaching phonology just makes it easier for them to, as you say, be intelligible to someone in a different context. Yes, that's a very interesting analogy. Learner difficulties based on production of different speech sounds, right? So, mm. um, if you don't have that sound in your L1 and you're not familiar with that sound, you don't know how to pronounce, produce that sound, it's very difficult to, to do that when you're learning a, um, a foreign language or, or a different language. Let's, let's look at the, let's take the example of dental fricatives, for example, right? Mm -hmm. So English has dental fricatives, um, th and th. Uh, this is absent in many other languages. So this is particularly well, um, the most common difficulty that um, learners of English find. Right. Looking at all the, 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 the different descriptions of, of uh, varieties of English, um, the, the, these TH sounds tend to be realized as the um, plosives, mm. T and D. This actually, you know, using plosives to in place of the dental fricatives, this does not actually cause any um, misunderstanding. Right. So, I mean, again, taking um, <laughs> the ELF standpoint, this is okay. It's okay to use um, alternative um, sounds as long as it does not um, cause misunderstanding. Mm. Well, whenever I'm teaching a class on oral communication, I always say that the first strategy before anything else is to repeat. So if you say something to someone, it can be lexically, grammatically, um, syntactically correct. But if there are a couple of things that are slightly off in the pronunciation range, the f person who's listening to you, if you want to find directions, if you want to get to your hotel, the person who you're speaking to might not be ready for this conversation and they might look like they don't understand. And Japanese learners oftentimes think that the problem is them, that they've not said it perfectly and they won't repeat it. But when you do repeat it, I think having this, this toolbox of different phonological uh, performances is going to be very useful. So when you say it the next time, maybe change some of the things, just be aware mm -hmm. that these things often cause slight communication problems, change them up, and you'll probably be successful the second time. Yes, yes, definitely. Awareness in yes. um, 
I, I don't want to say incorrect pronunciation, but awareness and in, 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 in differences in pronunciation is also key. My, he was my PhD supervisor, um, Professor David Dutterding, um, suggested that um, one of the best ways to learn is to record learners, for example, to, to record them reading a short passage, and then to let them know which pronunciation features are problematic or different. So in letting them know that, okay, um, I don't pronounce this, um, I wouldn't say correctly, but um, I, I, um, my pronunciation uh, of this sound or of this word is problematic and can cause misunderstanding. So knowing that and trying to, 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 to um, fix it, to rectify it is important. So at least they know that, okay, my pronunciation in, in this is problematic and I can fix it. And I, I know for next time that um, I will pronounce it in a different way that is more intelligible. Yeah, I, I think awareness is the most important thing because just to take the example of Japan, learners oftentimes over correct on things like L and R sounds, or as you, as you say, the the sound. They sometimes think that that those are the things they should focus on they overcorrect them and they don't think about anything else so having uh, a wider understanding of just as you say they're not they're not errors and they are differences between how one group of people expects the language to be performed in that context and it's just different from how they would do it. Uh, I think going into a conversation, they can have a bit more confidence that they can actually get their message across and have effective communication. So I think that that is a, a very positive approach to something that can make learners lose confidence. As long as you can speak clearly, <laughs> you don't have to, to, to sound like an inner circle speaker. You don't have to sound British or American. Mm. Um, you know, just, just try and speak as clearly as possible. Maybe it's slowly, if, if, if that helps, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, rate of speech is another something that, especially if you're nervous, rate of speech can certainly be something that where your message gets lost and even you start getting flustered. It, it's always the most difficult thing to think and speak at the same time, particularly yeah. when you're doing it in a second, third, fourth language in a place that you don't know with someone who you don't know. So all of these stresses kind of add up and it, it can affect your performance. So yeah, you're right. Calm down, slow down, focus on key features. Yeah, so, speak clearly, mm -hmm. speak as clearly as possible. I think we have moved um, that, that topic of conversation from um, world Englishes to ELF. <laughs> I, I think so too. So just to kind of finish off, uh, do you think within the, within our careers, let's say, within the next 30 years of, of uh, you studying your areas of world English as an elf and me studying mostly elf. Do you think that we're going to move away from using terms like inner, outer, expanding circle and more into what Dr. Andy Kirkpatrick wanted, which was a kind of proficiency-based model, different, different labels from saying where you are from and basically what you can do? I'm not sure about that. I mean, um, if you look at... Um one or actually two of the models um, uh, used in describing world Englishes. Um, are you familiar with Modiano's efficiency model? Yeah, 2000, so, right? Yeah. 
1999, and and uh, there was a, a revised model as well. So that model looked at proficiency level instead of you know um, as opposed to the the three circles model, where it's geographically and historically based. But again, there there have been uh, no model is perfect. There has been criticisms about that proficiency model as well. It, it can be problematic. What, what is proficiency in, 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 in this sense? Does it mean um, being able to use the language effectively? In, in which context? Does it mean um, being able to sound like an inner circle English? Okay. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not quite sure about that, but it is um, at the moment we are still using um, that categorization and it, it has been quite helpful, really. I described the circles model as kind of academic shorthand you can say it very quickly and it's something that anyone who's gone through an applied linguistics or an elt program will have heard it at least once so yes. it kind of helps get the conversation started and then because i don't think you can with someone who is, hasn't gone through the world english's english as an international language uh, elf kind of step by step that kind of understanding of the basis of the, all those i think it's, it's too quick to jump to elf and I think that's one of the things that I spoke about with Dr. Jennifer Jenkins, that people kind of misinterpreted it and misunderstood it from the beginning and then just kind of like thought that it was a, a fringe activity. So I, I do still use the three circles model to kind of start the conversation and then kind of take it from there. Yes, because it is quite d different in that sense, isn't it? I mean, um, just recently listening to a podcast again, <laughs> um, she made the difference between uh, one of the biggest differences between ELF and world Englishes is that in ELF you, you don't look at these varieties of Englishes. Mm. When so, for example, when when you have um, two people from different parts of the world communicating in English using English as the lingua franca, um, you don't think about um, using English. For example, if you're if you're from India, you don't think about speaking like um, thinking about these these varieties of, of, of the, the features of Indian English and using those features. Um, it is mostly about communicating and accom accommodating mm. and negotiating meaning. You know, so that, that there is no focus on on a certain variety of English. And again, the English used here as the lingua franca. Mm. It is not a single stable variety. It changes all the time. So in, in different contexts, it changes. And uh, again, depending on your, on your interlocutor, mm -hmm. it changes. So you just try to accommodate to how your interlocutor speaks. Well, I, I think that we agree on, on a lot. And I think that the work that you and I are doing is, is, kind of, is helping to build towards being able to open up this concept of adaptability and acceptability and negotiation between members of all of the all of the circles so i i look forward to reading your work in the future and i hope that when you publish you'll think about coming back on the podcast and uh, having another discussion about it because it's been fascinating yeah thank you very much i think that um providing descriptions about these different varieties of english is it, it's really interesting and it can be helpful for ELT, especially in pronunciation teaching. I agree, and I, I recommend anyone 
who is teaching pronunciation or has a pronunciation part of their English language teaching to come and take a look at uh, this this paper. Like I said, it's incredibly thorough. It goes back to research. Uh, the earliest one I think I could find was 1982, but there might be even earlier ones than that. As you might expect from a meta-analysis, the reference list is extensive. And so if this is something perhaps you're doing for your PhD, this might be a useful paper to, to start with and, and start getting some inspiration from. The name of the paper is The Features of Asian Englishes Phonology, which was published in the 2020 Handbook of Asian Englishes. We've been speaking with Dr. Ishamina Altira Gardner from the University of Brunei Dar es Salaam. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. Lost in Citations is an audio journal that invites you to contribute your own interviews. If there's someone whose work you cite regularly and you'd like to hear more from them, then please feel free to arrange your own interview and submit it for consideration. For more information, go to lostincitations.com where you'll find our guide for contributors. What we ask is you submit a five minute audio sample before the interview so that we can help you with any audio quality issues then you can go ahead and record 45 minutes to an hour and submit it at lostincitations at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, we have Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter pages. Finally, a very helpful thing you can do is, if you like the work we're doing, recommend it to a friend. Thank you very much.